I should like to call your attention this evening to the words which are to be found in the book of Genesis in the third chapter and the first verse. The first verse in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I want particularly to deal with the words, Yea, hath God said? Now we come back to a consideration of the message of this third chapter of this book of Genesis. There is no doubt at all that judged from almost any angle you like, it is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible that may come strangely to some. There have been many Christians who have felt that uh, surely the whole of the Old Testament is unnecessary, that as Christians we need nothing but the New Testament. But the early church, which by then was mainly Gentile, decided that the Old Testament should be incorporated with the New Testament in this book which we call the Bible. And undoubtedly, they were led and guided by the Holy Spirit to do so. They had prayed for guidance, and they believed that they'd had guidance. And so they put the Old Testament with the New. And they say that a Gentile who becomes a Christian needs the Old Testament as much as a Jew. And the reason is, of course, is this. That the whole Bible is the history of God's dealing with men. It's the history of redemption. And what gives to this third chapter of this book of Genesis such exceptional importance is that it is here we, were, we are given the history of how men first fell from the good estate in which God had originally placed him. In other words, it is the beginning of human history as we know it, and as mankind has known it from the very beginning, and as you can read it in your secular history books, as well as here in the historical portions of the Bible itself. And I say again that I'm calling attention to it because... We are concerned about a very practical issue. There may have been a time when uh, the preaching of the gospel was uh, a kind of hobby. Some perhaps might even have regarded it then as a sort of luxury. But I don't think anybody takes that view of it at the present time. Life has become desperate. It's very easy to understand, isn't it, the mentality of our forefathers here a hundred years ago. The Pax Britannica was in vogue. There seemed to be no dangers at all. And life went on, and you could make your basic assumptions and so on. But it's no longer like that. We, in this century and in our generation, have a dinner it come to learn. We've been forced to learn, whether we like it or not, that life is a very critical matter. And we are concerned about that. We find ourselves surrounded by problems and overwhelmed by them personally so often. And what we want to know is, where can I find relief? What can I do about it? Is there a way of escape? Well, now, I was indicating last Sunday night in a very general manner that the Bible deals with that very situation. There is no more contemporary, up-to-date, relevant book in the world than this old, old book which we call the Bible. It's concerned about men, it's concerned about you, it's concerned about all of us, just as we are and where we are tonight. It speaks to our very condition and it holds before us a way of life. But here I say the special message in a sense is, is to tell us why we are in this condition. And as to why things are are as they are in the world in general and in our own individual cases. Now, I put it in a very general form. Let me just remind you of it in a word in this way. The Bible, I say, presents us with a definite, concrete, comprehensive worldview. And it's absolutely different 
from anything that you can ever find anywhere else whatsoever. The great marks, I said, of its message are these. It starts with God. It tells us that he's created everything. It tells us that man is not merely an evolving animal, but a special creation of God. It tells us how Satan and evil came in, how man fell, how man is utterly helpless, how he's under the judgment of God but how God in his infinite love and mercy and compassion has intervened and has provided a great and a grand way of salvation which is preached and offered to mankind. Now, that's our general statement. And here I say, we are given all that in just one chapter. Now, the point I want to make about it all this evening is this. That is actual history. This is something that literally did happen. Now, I mustn't uh, allow this to absorb me too much, and yet it's very important. There are people, you know, who say, yes, I, I, I'm interested in the Christian doctrine, but I, I'm not interested in those early chapters of Genesis. Well, that's an utterly illogical position to be in. I cannot see how anybody can believe in the Christian salvation as it's taught in the New Testament without believing these chapters of Genesis. One of the greatest exponents of this Christian faith that the world has ever known was the mighty Apostle Paul. And he tells us something like this, that we are as we are because of the sin of Adam and that we all sinned with him and fell with him. And he says that over against Adam is the Lord Jesus Christ. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The first man did this. The second man has done that. It's very important, therefore, that we should be clear about this. This is history. However, I say, I don't want to dwell on that this evening. I rather want to put it like this. This is what makes the Bible such an extraordinary book and fills it with such fascination. This chapter is, uh, first of all, I say, history. But in addition to being history, it is an actual account of what every one of us does also. Because according to the Bible, that's the remarkable thing about man in sin. He has not only been taken down, as it were, by Adam, he does the very self-same thing himself. He goes on repeating the action of Adam. So here, at one and the same time, we have this amazing history. And at the same time, we are given an analysis of the very thing that we do ourselves. Now then, let me put it like this. Here you see where Adam and Eve. And we find them becoming desperately miserable and unhappy. Filled with a sense of fear hiding themselves, not knowing what to do themselves. We find them to condemn to a certain type of life. The woman told that she'd have to bear her children in sorrow and in pain, and the man being told that he's got to work and earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. There they are, in that condition. Now the question is, how did they ever get into that condition? What was the cause of that? Because they were not always like that. Go back to chapter 2, and you'll find that they were in a very different state. There they were in a condition which is described as paradise. Yet here they are in this abject misery. What was it that produced that, that caused this tremendous change? Well, the answer is given in this first verse to which I'm directing your attention this evening. It was because men ceased to listen to God and to what God said. Now, there's really nothing more to say than just that. That is the proposition. There is only one explanation as to why the world is as it is at this minute and as to why every single individual is as he, he or she is at this second. What is it? Well, I say it's this. That man listens to that question of the tempter. Has God said? Do you really believe that? 
Are you really being bound by that? The devil came, you remember, and said, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And it was because they accepted that question and acted upon it that they brought ruin upon themselves and upon all their posterity. Now, let me try and put it in a picture because I want to show you this is the perfect picture of every one of us. There you see where Adam and Eve confronted by God's way. God had made them, God had blessed them, God had surrounded them with benefits and with great blessings. He put them in the garden, in paradise. Man simply had to pick the fruit, as it were, and enjoy himself and enjoy his communion with God. Yes, God did all that, but God added something to that. God added a law. God said to men, now you can go on living this sort of life endlessly on condition. And the condition was that he obeyed God. That he recognized the overlordship of God. That he recognized that God had a right to do with his own as he willed and as he chose. And that God really, in giving even this law, was concerned about men's well-being and his happiness. That was the position. The blessings were being showered upon him, but there was this law, this condition, this demand for obedience. But men, do you see, rejected that. It was just at that point he went wrong and brought all that misery upon himself. Now, the whole case for the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight is just like that. I'm standing in this pulpit because God has spoken to mankind. He has spoken to the world. He has sent his only son into this world to speak to us and to give us a message. What is it? Well, he offers all the blessings of the gospel. He offers to take us as his children, to regard us as his sons, to make us his heirs. He offers us to receive of all the fullness of his own blessed son. The blessings of the gospel, they're untold. Paul describes them as the unsearchable riches of Christ. He offers us to live a kind of life like Christ himself lived, with joy and peace and all these wondrous blessings unmixed. But he adds to it the same demand, the same request. He would have us live as the Lord Jesus Christ lived. He would have us be holy. He says in offering us all these blessings of the gospel, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in other words, is not just some very pleasant message to say, Go and do anything you like, God loves you. It'll be all right at the end. Receive all these blessings and there's no more to say. You know, it doesn't stop at that. Ye that love the Lord, it says, hate evil. If you want to love God, it, it tells us, you cannot love mammon at the same time. If you want to walk along the narrow way, you can't continue on the broad way. If you want your house to be on a rock, well then it cannot be on the sand at the same time. There is this demand, always coupled with it, like Adam in the, in the garden in paradise, everything that a man could desire, but just this law, this demand for obedience, and so it is in the gospel. The gospel is not just a statement that God is benevolent and loving and it doesn't matter, I say, what we do at all, that everything's going to be all right at the end, because God is love. It isn't that. And you see, it is because it isn't that that men still object. And men still goes on repeating exactly what was done in the garden at the beginning by Adam and Eve. Well, now I want to try to show you, as we look at these first verses in this third chapter of this book of Genesis, what exactly, therefore, it is we do when we reject Christ, and as we may not be Christian? There is something almost incredible about this story, isn't there? As you look at it in terms of Adam and Eve especially, 
It's almost incredible that they could have done such a thing, but they did it. It is history, I say, and all the consequences have followed. And I'm holding the picture before you, as I've said, because it's an equally true portrayal and representation of what every one of us has done. And all oh, that we may have grace to see it. If only we could see ourselves as we are in sin, I don't believe we'd stay there another second. But God in his grace has given us a picture of the thing, that we may see exactly what we are doing. Well now then, let's try and look at the steps. The first thing that I observe is this, is the way in which this is done. Go back into the old story and observe the way in which Adam and Eve did this. What was it that made them behave as they did? What was it that led them to eat of that prohibited fruit? What was it? Well, the astounding thing is this. They did it simply on the strength of the dogmatic assertion of the devil. Nothing else whatsoever. I wonder if you've ever noticed that as you've read this chapter or as you've considered it. Have you noticed that the devil, in a sense, didn't give them any reasons at all? What he did was to make a dogmatic assertion. I see it all in his original question. Yea, he said, hath God said, he shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And you hear the sneer in his voice as he says it. You see, his whole philosophy comes out at once. He is raising a query. Poor innocence, he seems to say. Do you really believe that? And it's just an assertion. It's just a dogmatic statement. He doesn't provide them with any proofs at all. He simply asserts certain things. He puts it still more specifically later. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. That's all there is to it. I say so. Dogmatic assertion. And they listen. Now, I say it's at that point I find it rather difficult at times to understand them. And yet the moment I begin to think I understand them very well, because I know that everybody who's a sinner, and we're all sinners by nature, and everybody who remains in sin is in that position in exactly the same way. Now, this is rather striking, isn't it? And it's rather remarkable. Had you ever realized that anybody who's not a Christian tonight is really basing his whole position simply upon a dogmatic assertion? Nothing else. There's no proof whatsoever. Of course, I know they say, science proves. But does science prove? Is there anything in that statement beyond this dogmatic assertion? Of course they say no sensible man believes that today. And because somebody comes to me and says no sensible man believes that today, well, I say I'd better not believe. But nothing has been proved at all. I've simply been listening to a statement. It is stated dogmatically that nobody who has this learning, especially this scientific knowledge, any longer believes that. All right, we say, we'll turn our backs and we'll no longer. You see the very thing that Adam and Eve did. They listened to a dogmatic pronouncement unaccompanied by any proof whatsoever. It is sheer dogmatism. And this is where the contradiction emerges. People are never tired of speaking of the dogmatism of the pulpit, the dogmatism of the preacher, the dogmatism of the church. And they don't like this. They don't like dogmatism. But I'm simply here to put a simple question to you. If you are not a Christian at this minute, if you don't believe this book and if you don't believe in God, on what grounds are you not doing so? What are your reasons? What's your argument? Where's your proof? Can you prove to me that there isn't a God? Can you prove to me that Jesus of Nazareth was not the only begotten Son of God with two natures in one person? You say you don't believe it. You don't believe in miracles. Does that prove that he never worked a miracle? Can you prove it? Have you anything beyond a dogmatic position? 
I've quoted it many a time in this pulpit before. Let me quote it again because I think it is the most perfect example of the thing to which I'm referring. The famous statement made by Matthew Arnold, the, the literary man, about a hundred years ago. Matthew Arnold put it like this. Miracles cannot happen. Therefore, miracles have not happened. We might as well go home. There's no more to say. And you see, people listen to that and they believe it still. Matthew Arnold says it. Miracles cannot happen, therefore, miracles have not happened. Of course, if the first statement is right, the second is right, and the therefore is perfectly legitimate. But the vital question is, what about the first statement? Who can establish the fact that miracles cannot happen? Nobody can. It's never been done. It never will be done. It is nothing but sheer dogmatic assertion. I mustn't stay with this preliminary matter, but my dear friend, I do trust that I'm opening your eyes to this position. What are the grounds of your unbelief? What is really the basis for your rejection of this gospel? What have you really got to substantiate what you say you believe and don't believe? What is it really based on? Has it anything to say except that so-and-so doesn't believe? And I read an article and I heard a man saying and nobody any longer believes and science says and so on and so forth. And I suggest to you that when you analyze it, you'll find that it just comes to that. It's this tremendous hoax. I take the view with those who say that the greatest hoax of the last 150 years has been the theory of evolution. And it's hoaxed the vast majority of mankind. It was a theory put up, it's been turned and twisted as if it were a fact, and everybody believes it. But it's pure dogmatic assertion. It's nothing beyond a supposition. Well, there it is, you see. It happened at the beginning, and it's been happening ever since. On the basis of a pure bit of dogmatism, man brought upon himself the misery and the wretchedness that he's still enduring. Oh, my friend, let me appeal to you in the name of Christ and of the gospel. Begin to think. Think. Substuff, you say. This isn't substuff. The great appeal of the gospel is that men should think. They've been duped by the devil. They're living in darkness. When the apostle Paul was commissioned by the risen Lord to go out preaching, this is what he said to him. He told him that he'd send him to be a witness to the people. Opening their eyes that you may turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Go and enlighten them, said Christ to Paul. Open their eyes, teach them, instruct them, make them think, tell them how to think. That's the trouble, that mankind is deluded by a prejudice, is silenced by a dogmatism which comes from the arch enemy. It began like that, it has continued like that. But now let us observe some of the steps of the process in detail. The stages through which men went after he was bemused by the dogmatism of Satan. This shining personality that came in the form of a serpent. He was dazzled by it. The authority and the dogmatism. As so many, I say, are dazzled today by the authority of big names and science and other abstractions. Listen to the steps and stages. Men, as the result of listening to this, began to doubt God's power. Yea, and hath God said, He shall not eat of the tree of the garden? The woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall he touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. 
Don't believe it, said the devil. God has spoken to you like that, and it sounded as if it was very powerful, but you need pay no attention to that. You can eat of that fruit perfectly simply, and I assure you that you shall not surely die. God can't do it. It's an idle word. Don't listen to it. Don't be frightened. Don't be tyrannized. Stand up against him. It's not true. They began to query the power of God. That was the first thing. And you know it's always the first thing. If we all but realized the power of God, we wouldn't continue defying him for a second. It's because of this doubt of the power of God and our unbelief in the power of God that men continue still in sin. The Bible puts that positively by putting it like this. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is a fearful thing, says another scripture, to fall into the hands of the living God. You remember the message that was given by the prophet Daniel and through the prophet Daniel to King Belshazzar at his feast? He pointed out to him not only how he desecrated those vessels of the temple and had been drinking in them with his concubines, but he says, Oh, serious is this, thou hast not glorified the God in whose hands thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways. They began to doubt the power of God. And the moment they did that, of course, everything else followed. And you see, this method, the process is still being repeated. The Bible is full of this. You remember even a man like Moses when he was first called by God to his test. He had that great vision of the burning bush and he was about to go forward and investigate. Back came the voice saying, Stand back, take off thy shoes from off thy feet. The ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. The power of God. Isn't this still the trouble? Has it ever occurred to you that the very way in which we tend to talk about God is in and of itself an expression of our denial of the power of God? How fond we are, all of us, of religious debates and discussions. What is there more enjoyable than to have an argument about these matters? I know, I say this as the men... I don't see that God can do this or ought to do that. And there he is perhaps standing with his hands in his pockets and a cigarette in his mouth and talking about God. The God who said to Moses, stand back, take your shoes off your feet. Do you realize who I am and what I am? I am what I am. Are you coming to investigate me? Stand back. The almighty God the creator of the ends of the earth, who never knows what it is to be weary or to be tired, who never faints everlastingly, almighty in his eternity and in his glory, and yet think of the way in which all of us have spoken about him and have argued about him and have expressed our opinions about him. There is no fear of God before our eyes. That's the trouble. We don't know what we're speaking about. We don't understand God. And then, of course, with our characteristic modern confidence, we smile at such preaching, and we say, of course, uh, our forefathers a hundred years and so on uh, ago, they could be frightened, you know, and of course, as long as men were subject to this spirit of fear, he was a Christian and he believed the gospel. We are familiar with all that, we say. We've studied the science of comparative religion since then. 
And we know how all these religions are based upon fear, with God as some sort of great bogeyman in the heavens. And people are ready to believe it. Some believe the same about the sun, and others about the moon and the stars. Ralph's comparative religion teaches me all this. And as long as men are in that spirit of fear, they can be kept down and they'll believe in God, and they'll accept your religion. But... We know too much to do that sort of thing. We say, has God said? Fancy people being frightened in that way. Fancy people being alarmed about hell. Fancy people in fear and trembling and crying out, what must I do to be saved? Not the modern man. No, no, he knows so much. He's lost the fear of God. He doesn't believe in that sort of thing. I'm not uh, drawing a caricature, am I? Am I not speaking the sober, literal truth? Is not that the attitude of men and women to this almighty God at this very moment? They're defying God. They're defying his power. A man says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. My head is bloody but unbowed. I, modern man, I'm self-sufficient. I'll stand and defy whatever gods there be. I cannot be frightened. I cannot be tyrannized. I cannot be alarmed. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of eternity. I'm not afraid of God. It may not always be put in those words, but that's what it is. If your life is not entirely submitted to God this evening, that's what your position is. For if you really believe in the power of God over and above you, I say you'll fall at his feet, you'll prostrate yourself, you'll look into his face and say, have mercy upon me, bless me. Are you doing so? Have you ever done so? Who's controlling your life and your ideas? Is it God or is it yourself? And is it your contemporary modern men? You see, the doubt came in about the power of God, but still more serious, the devil insinuated a doubt about the goodness of God. You remember how he put it? The devil said unto these people, For God doth know that the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. You know, said the devil to Adam and Eve. I've been sorry for you for a long time. I've seen the way in which God has frightened you and tyrannized over your life. And I've been wanting to tell you and I've come to tell you. Do you know why he said all this? Well, he just doesn't want you to become what you ought to be and what you've got it in you to become. You see, he's jealous and he doesn't want you to become gods and to know good and evil as he does. So he said, don't eat of that fruit because the moment you do eat, you'll be like God himself. And you see, that's why he's introduced his prohibition. And they believed it. They began to doubt the justice of God and the righteousness of God, the benevolence of God, the goodness of God. They began to doubt, I don't hesitate to put it like this, the very morality of God. They listened to the devil when he told them that God was against them. And that it was because he was against them that he'd introduced the prohibition. They believed it. They believed that God was jealous and selfish and small and was holding things from them that he might lord it over them. That's what they believed. And I needn't take any of your time in mind reminding you and pointing out to you that that's the appalling thing that millions of people are believing about God at this very moment. In their heart of hearts, they regard God as a monster, someone who's against them, someone who just delights in tyrannizing them and spoiling their lives. Isn't that the common grounds which are brought forward for refusal to believe this gospel? Uh, 
I wonder whether I'm speaking to any young person in this congregation at this moment who perhaps has left home for the first time. So far you've been taken to a place of worship by your parents, but you've left home, you've come to London. And have you got a thought like this in your heart? Now then, I'm going to give this up. It's held me down, it's robbed me of so much. This narrow life, chapel going, reading Bible, prayer meeting, so on. I've missed so much. At last I've got my opportunity. I'm now really going to start living and enjoying life. Have you got a thought like that? We've all had it. We've all known it. We've had a feeling that the gospel is something narrow and cramped that puts fetters upon us and robs us of some marvelous life that the people who haven't been brought up like this have always enjoyed. Isn't that the thought? That somehow God and this Christian way of life are against us and opposed to our best interests and to our enjoyment of life and to our happiness and that somehow or another that God doesn't wish us well nor desire us to enjoy our lives in this world. It's still that, isn't it? And coupled with that, of course, the idea that God's judgment is wrong, that it's unfair, and that God has no right to speak like this to us, and why should I stand in the judgment at the end? Is it righteous? And so on. Well, there it is. That's the second thing. And then you notice the next step, how interesting these steps are, and how we all repeat them and retrace them as we go through life in this world the next step, of course, was inevitably this one. Human reason came in and substituted itself for God's way. You notice the steps, first of all, the, dog the dogmatism, the assertion, then the questioning about God's power and the questioning about God's goodness, and then, well, after all, there's something in this. Do you notice? It's put like this in the sixth verse. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she'd seen that tree always. It had been there before she came there. She'd often looked at it, but she'd never seen this before. She now sees that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise. She saw all this, and she took the fruit thereof, and she ate it. And that is always the next step, you see. We start with this query and question of the power of God. We say we needn't be afraid. We've got to be men after all. We mustn't really be coward. We mustn't allow these feelings and fears that we've got in us to dominate us. Shake that off. Stand on your feet. Then, well, let's examine this God. Is he good? No, no, that religion is too small. It's too narrow. The other is so much bigger. Very well. The moment you get there, then you begin to think. And you begin to reason and to work out your own philosophy. And you say, well, of course, I'd always been brought up to think that that worldly life was a very bad life. But really, now that I come to look at it, it doesn't seem to be so bad. Look at the people who are living it. They don't die the moment they sin. They seem to be able to do anything they like, and indeed they flourish on it. They're fat and flourishing. They look very much happier than many of those miserable Christians. My word, this isn't a bad life after all. And look at the great men who are doing it. Look at the publicity they get. And so on, we begin to reason and to argue. And then, of course, we say, well... We don't want to give up religion altogether. Well, what shall we do then? Well, let's make a religion that's more satisfactory. So, you see, by exercising our human reason and our own thoughts, we even begin to create a new God. Oh, yes, we say we want to believe in God, but not a God with prohibitions, not a God with a law, not a just and a righteous and a holy God. Not a God who has judgment and who threatens with hell. No, no. The God we want, the God we believe in, is a God who is always smiling upon us and who says, it's all right. I shan't see it. I'll forgive everything. Carry on. Isn't that what's being done? 
Put down on paper your ideas of God, what you think God is and what God ought to be, and compare them with the Bible. And I think you'll find that I haven't exaggerated by a single syllable. Man, you see, having gone to this stage, he now forgets God altogether and substitutes his own opinion, his own philosophy. And that's what's been happening for a hundred years. The Bible is no longer the authority. We no longer listen to God, we are listening to men. But you know, there's something here that to me is more amazing and more astonishing than all this. It's the last thing I want to mention. Here it is. The fact that men could do this in spite of what God had done for him, and in spite of all the blessings that he'd enjoyed. That is what I meant when I said at the beginning that there is a sense in which I just don't understand it. Have you ever thought of it like that? Look at this man, Adam, look at Eve. There they are. Think of what God had done for them. He'd made them, he'd given them everything. He'd made them lords of creation. He'd given them this marvelous life in paradise. He'd come to speak to them. He'd visited them. They were walking with him. They were enjoying bliss that passes our imagination. Everything was easy. Everything was perfect. God had done all that for them. And yet, they are ready and willing to believe all these lies about him, to turn their backs upon him, to disobey him, and thus to bring down all this upon their head. Don't you find it difficult to understand that? What is it you say about a man who lets down a friend? What you say about the sort of men, let's call him A, who was in serious and terrible trouble, and his friend B helped him, gave him money, allowed him to share his house, showered his gifts upon him, did everything he could for him, without stinting at all. What do you think of that man A, who is ready to listen to some foul insinuation that's made against his friend B. Someone comes and tells him, look here, he did that because it paid him to do it, because it suited him to do it. He wasn't doing it for your sake. He always thinks of himself and he's always selfish and self-centered. Fancy believing that he did it out of the goodness of his heart and out of his own benevolence. Did you really believe it? It isn't true. And he believes it. And he repeats it. And he does things against his greatest friend and benefactor. What would you think of him? You'd call him a cad, wouldn't you? And you'd be right. Well, what do you say about Adam and Eve? It was in spite of what God had done for them and all the blessings he'd showered upon them that they believed the lie and resented him and, as it were, turned their backs upon him and went their own way. But, my dear friend, that is precisely what everybody who is not a Christian at this moment is still doing. It's God who's given you life. It's God who saw to it that you should be born into a family with loved ones to care for you and to look after you. It's God who ordained marriage. It's God who's ordained the family. It's God who's ordained the state. It is God the Father who sends the rain. It's God who gives the sun. It's God who fructifies the crops in the fields and gives us food. Do you know he could stop it all in a second if he chose to do so? It's God in his Benefaction who does all this, it is providence that surrounds us with all these glorious gifts and benefits from our very birth into this life. Not only that. Have you ever stopped to think of the benefits of Christianity in a general sense that you've enjoyed? 
Has it ever occurred to you that the things you prize most of all in this world have come as sort of byproducts from the Christian faith? Your education, your hospitals, and all these things, Christianity introduced them. They would never have come but for Christianity and the church. The world would never have introduced them. Go back into the history. Don't believe my word. Trace it for yourselves. All these things are the results of Christianity. And you've enjoyed them. They've come from God. He showered them upon you. But all these things pale into insignificance. By the side of something else that God has done. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved this world that there had rebelled against him and spat into his face. He so loved it that in spite of that he sent out his only Son and he, I don't understand it, but he came and was born as a babe in Bethlehem. He humbled himself. He went to the cross. He died on a tree that you and I might be redeemed, forgiven and restored to God and to heaven. And yet men spit in his face. They still do it. The old action of Adam and Eve is repeated. It was in spite of all that God had done for them that they believed the lie and men and women still believe the lie. They've looked at Calvary. They've looked at a cross and they say it's nothing. God's against us. The God who did that is against us. There's only one thing to say about it. It's madness, my friends. You're being beguiled. You're being bemused. Dust been thrown into your eyes. Can't you see the folly of it all? To say that a God who did that and didn't spare his only son is selfish and arrogant and waiting to crush you and is against you. Face the facts. Recognize the unutterable folly of it all. Because if you don't realize it now, a day will come when you realize that all this is true. The devil looked at Adam and Eve and said, Don't believe it. Eat the fruit as much as you like. You shall not surely die. But they did die. Death came into the world. And it's been here ever since. No evil consequences will follow, said the devil. But they did. Turned out of paradise. Food earned by the sweat of our brow. Isn't it true? We don't like it. We're trying to fight against it. Seven day week, six day week, five day week. If we could have it, no day a week. Permanent holidays. Everything for nothing. By the sweat of thy brow. Painful childbirth. It's all come, it's all still here, and it'll all continue. You shall not surely die. Driven out, working, sweating, bearing children, murder coming in amongst the very children, and die death. How easy it is to make dogmatic pronouncements with nothing to substantiate. 
but they make not the slightest difference to the truth about God. And you and I at this moment are in the presence of this almighty and eternal God. Don't you feel it's time to take off your shoes from off your feet? And to put your hand on your mouth? And to be careful as to what you say? We are in his hands. He's made his way plain and clear. He's shown us why the misery has come upon us. He offers us the way out. There is full, there is free salvation at this very moment in Jesus Christ. You have but to realize and to acknowledge to God that all your troubles are due to your sin, your rebellion against God. Go and tell him that. Tell him that you receive his offer in Christ and he'll receive you. And he'll bless you. And if you do that, the wrath of God will no longer abide upon you. You needn't fear death and the grave. You needn't fear God. For you will know that you've been reconciled to him. And that you've become his child. In other words, reverse the very process that happened in the garden. And all will be well with your soul. Give up your foolish reasoning. And listen to God. Believe his word. Submit yourself to it. And soon you will delight in it. For it will be living the life. Of God himself. Instead of asking. Hath God said. Say. I believe. What God has said. I accept it. I surrender. Myself to it. Do so. And you will be blessed. In a manner. That you'll never understand. Here in this world. Blessed in the act of death. And you will go on. To be with God and with Christ throughout eternity. Amen.